You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. semester in RUF is that we have been looking at the parables that Jesus has told. And these parables were told in such a way to intentionally aggravate us, intentionally disturb us, to blow up the categories in our head that are really delusions of who God is and what it looks like to connect with him. And we're going to look at one last parable tonight since this is our last Throw down together, and uh, you're going to see tonight that it's equally as disturbing or agitating. So I'm going to read it from Luke chapter 19, beginning of verse 11. It says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had been given, to whom he had given the money to be called to him, and that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take them, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Can't say T's. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's a fun way to end. Maybe we should just close in prayer right here. It would be an amazing way to stop. Um, Let me pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you free us to be weak. You free us to be unsuccessful. You free us to be insecure, to be afraid. Father, I pray if there's anyone here in this room tonight that is feeling insecure, afraid, anxious, that you would remind them that you're with them and that you would remind them that they have the freedom to be so. For those of us in this room that are feeling 
burdened and weighed down with all the responsibilities that are accumulating as we look down the barrel the, the last part of the semester, I pray that you would be near them and remind them that they are free to fail. I pray that your grace would, would sink into all of these different nooks and crannies of our guilt, our shame, our anger, our apathy, our excitement, our anxiety, our depression. And that we would be freed to know that you are a God that accepts us as we are and yet loves us too much to leave us that way. So open up our eyes and unclog our ears. Soften our hearts so that we would be able to hear and to respond to the beauty and the goodness of your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a um, recent phenomenon in our in kind of pop culture where... Everybody is making movies, TV shows, books, music within this genre called post-apocalyptic, which is, in other words, uh, kind of the end of the world type scenarios. So you think about TV shows like The Walking Dead, Rick Grimes, uh, super popular, super famous. You think about um, books like Divergent or The Hunger Games or, if you're really artsy, The Road. Um, I guess it's not that artsy. Um, think about movies like Mad Max or The Terminator. Even Sufjan Stevens put out an album that was kind of post-apocalyptic called The Age of Odds, if you're familiar with that. But it's not just pop culture that's kind of really into this apocalyptic, into the world stuff. Christians for a long time have been really obsessed with this as well in some really weird ways. A friend of mine uh, told me that in the year 1987, there was a popular book that came out by a Christian writer called 88 Reasons Why Christ is Returning in the Year 1988. Apparently, I didn't look this up, but apparently you can look up all 88 reasons online somewhere. So y'all can Google that and let me know what you find. But apparently one of the reasons was this. This was one of the 88 of his rationale for why Jesus is coming back and the world's ending in 1988. He says this, water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you take that number and you add it to 1776, which was the year that this country was founded, it comes out to 1988. <laughs> Which I think is pretty precise methodology for coming up with the end of the world numbers. But, you know, that's just one installment of like a million where Christians come on the scene. And it's like, no, no, everybody else is wrong. Here's the real data for here's the date where it's going to happen. The end of the world's going to happen here and Jesus is going to come back here. And Christians have been doing this for a long time. And just by the way, so you know, it says in the Bible, nobody knows the date. Jesus himself says nobody knows, so nobody knows. But here's what the Bible does say. Even though nobody knows when the end is going to happen, the Bible does clearly say the end is going to happen. And so Jesus tells us this parable to kind of give us some images and pictures of what the end might actually look like. And so I want to look, look at two big ideas with you tonight before we finish. That the end comes with expectations... And the end comes with judgment. Two ideas I think you're particularly fond of. Expectations and judgment. So that's another good reason why we should close in prayer. Um, so let's look at the first thing. That the end comes with expectations. If you look at verse 11, uh, Jesus and his disciples are nearing Jerusalem. And as they're getting closer to the capital city, everyone started to have inflated views of what Jesus was going to do when he got there. Because people assumed Jesus was going to be like the Middle Eastern version of Jack Bauer or Liam Neeson or 
I don't know who like the most popular or up to like Rick Grimes, whoever. Somebody is just going to roll in there, roll into Jerusalem, and like start a political and military revolution. And they thought it was going to happen with force and immediately. This is what you see in verse 11. They thought that the kingdom of God would come immediately. What they didn't know is Jesus was going to roll into that capital city, Jerusalem, and in less than a week he was going to be executed by the very people they thought he was going to overthrow. And all their hopes and dreams came crashing down once they realized that the kingdom of God doesn't come with force immediately. And so Jesus tells us this parable so that we're a little bit more up to speed with what reality is like. He says, in beginning in verse uh, 12, that there's this nobleman who represents Jesus himself that is going to go off to this far country. And after a long time of being there, he's going to return. And what Jesus is kind of setting up at the beginning here is that, hey, I'm getting ready to go into Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed. And three days later, I'm going to rise. And then I'm going to ascend to my Father in heaven, and I'm going to be there for a long time. And one day, someday, I'm going to come back then, and at that point, the kingdom will come in all of its fullness. Then, not necessarily now. And what's interesting is that it's been 2,000 years since he said this, and we're still waiting. Like, we're, we're living right now in the middle of this particular part of this story. We're living in this interval of when Jesus was here and when he's coming back again. And the question is, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we wait? And Jesus tells you, right here in verse 13. He calls together ten of his servants, and he gives each of them one mina. Now, you don't know what a mina is, because I don't know what a mina is. It's a, it's a measurement of money that people used back in that day that roughly was three months' worth of wages. Three months of salary, that's one mina. He gives them each you know, a pretty good chunk of change, and he says in verse 13, uh, I have expectations for what I want you to do with this. I want you to engage in business with this while I'm gone. These are my expectations. And when I come back, those are my expectations that I'm going to evaluate on what you did with this money. And if you think about it, uh, that's not all that weird. Uh, Donors' intent is kind of what's going on here. So, for example, if somebody gives RUF a gift of $100 to send one of y'all to RUF Winter Conference next February, which, by the way, you should go... But if they give $100 to RUF for you to go to Winter Conference, I can't take that money and then, like, go buy an Xbox game with it, right? Like, it's intended, the intention of the donor dictates where that money goes. And God is saying, look, I'm giving you my grace. I'm giving you this gospel of grace, and I have expectations for what I want you to do with it. I want you to take it, and I want you to carry on the family business. This is what he means when he says in verse 13, engage in business until I come again. Do what I would have done. Work on my behalf. As you live your life, live it in the same way that I would have lived. How did Jesus live? What did he do? He fed the homeless. He washed people's feet. Uh, He freed captives. He forgave people's guilt. He took burdens off of them instead of putting them on them. He befriended and loved people that didn't have any friends. The the verse actually right before this passage in Luke 19 verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's what he's about. That's the story with which Jesus wants you to enter into and then to embody yourself. 
That story is this. Jesus died so that you might live. You could say that's his business model. The way that he wants his family business to run is on this business model. I died so that you might live. I came and I laid down my life as a sacrifice so that you might live. And now, take that grace and become that grace to the world. Uh, Think of it like this. In the year 1999, I was a senior in high school. Some of y'all were four years old or less. But I was a senior in high school and I was waiting in line early one Saturday morning to get tickets to the opening show of Star Wars Episode One. Jar Jar Binks. Misa disappointed. And uh, so I'm waiting in line with my friends. And while we were waiting for like hours, uh, there were people dressed up as Chewbacca next to me. There were Jedis in line. Children were having like lightsaber battles in the street as we were kind of waiting there. And you know that same thing is going to happen next month when episode seven drops, right? Like people are going to get dressed up. It's like the weirdos are coming out. You may be some of those weirdos. So glad that you're here. And, um, <laughs> but if you notice, it's not just Star Wars that people do this. If you, were, if you were aware enough back in the day when like new Harry Potter books would come out, at Barnes & Noble when a new Harry Potter book was about to drop, people rolled out and they were dressed up in the robes and they had the wands and the wizards were out. Like don't tell me when you were younger you never picked up a stick and tried to summon a Patronus in the backyard. Like I know you did. <laughs> You cast some unforgivable curses on your friends. But, but here's the deal. Star Wars, Harry Potter, whatever it is, good stories compel you, invite you to live in them, to embody them, to have that story shape who you are as a person. And the gospel story is this. Jesus died so that you might live. And when that story becomes beautiful and compelling to you, you want to enter into it. You want to embody that story yourself. Let me share with you one quick thing of what um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.11. See if this sounds familiar, this whole idea of I die so that you might live. He says, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Did you hear it? Death in us, life in you. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. I die so that you live. I die so that you live. What in the world would that look like practically? Let me give you a couple ideas. Some of you have people on your hall or in your house that really have no friends. They're incredibly lonely. They're engaging in habits that's self-destructive. They're a total drain to be around. You try to be nice to them, but they just like suck all of your energy. To move towards that person out of love is going to feel like death to you. It's going to cost you like study time. It's going to cost you your social life. It's going to cost you your comfort because you're going to get into that person's life and you're just like, you're not going to know what to say or do a lot of the time. It's going to be awkward and weird and you're going to feel like death so that that person might experience a little bit of life. Or here's another example. Some, I know a lot of y'all are young life leaders. And uh, for, for a young life leader to leave campus and to drive across town and to go into a high school during lunchtime, and enter into that cafeteria 
it feels like death. Because you become a seventh grader all over again and your insides are screaming with insecurities. Is there anyone in here that likes me? Am I cool enough? Where do I sit? What am I looking okay? Like you're, you're so insecure and freaking out. It's costing you a lot just to do that. It's costing you time that you could be here with your friends. It's costing you study time. It's costing you your comfort. Like me right now. It's co- it costs you a lot to go into that high school. It's you dying so that you can offer some high school kid life. That's what you're doing. You die so that they might live. And some of you have friends that are engaged in really destructive sin patterns or are just making really stupid decisions. And you need to talk to them. And that confrontational conversation feels like death because it feels like you're risking everything. It costs you your comfort because you're going to get into it. You don't know how they're going to react. If they get defensive and angry, it might even cost you the friendship. But you are willing to die so that you can offer your friend life. That's what Christians do, by the way. That's the family business. We die so that others live. If I can put it this way, Jesus calls every single Christian into ministry. Period. That's why we're here. Uh, One of my old friends who used to do RUF at UT did a whole semester-long series called Faith Means You Do Stuff. I kind of liked it. And it's just biblical. Faith without works is dead, is all he's saying. What he's saying is that when you receive the grace, when you get your little mina, when you get the gospel of grace in you, the way that you respond to grace is that you become that grace to the world. The way that you respond to his grace for you is that you become that grace to the world. That's his expectations of what our life is supposed to look like between now and when he returns. So when he returns, uh, we need to look at the second idea, that he also comes, that the end also comes with not just expectations, but with judgment. And I know you love this topic. So what do we, look, what do we see here? Well, if you go back to the story, if you look at verse 15, the nobleman, 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 the nobleman returns, and this kind of represents Jesus' second coming. This is the end of all things. He comes And he has the kingdom now. He's fully, uh, the kingdom has come. And it's kind of like this day of reckoning where he meets up with all of his servants to see what they've done with his money. And he goes to the first servant and he discovers that this dude took one mina and he made ten out of it. And it's really interesting that the king congratulates this servant not for his productivity but for his faithfulness. Because he was faithful. Really interesting. If you notice that in verse 17, you have been faithful in very little. And the way that he rewards him is not with a vacation. It's not with like an afternoon in an Eno, like doing his thing. It is more responsibility. He says you can have ten cities. I mean, imagine that. God gives you three months worth of money. And you kind of turn a little bit of profit on it. And when you come back, God says, okay, that was amazing. I'm so proud of you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make you the governor of Memphis and Jackson and Nashville and Knoxville and Chattanooga and Johnson City and Asheville and Birmingham and Atlanta and Charlotte. That would be over the top, like, excessive. 
That's recklessly crazy, generous, gracious. I know it's a little overwhelming, but maybe put it in these terms. Let's say you pass your econ final. That's like your professor saying, I'm so proud that you passed this test. So I met with the board, and we've decided to make you the new dean of the Haslam College of Business. It'd be like, that seems disproportionate. And he does the same thing with the second guy, just reckless, over-the-top generosity, pouring it on, graciousness. And then you get to the third guy, and the record kind of scratches, and it kind of stops. And you look at the third guy, and you find out in verse 20 that he hasn't done anything. He hasn't carried on the family business. And the question is why? Why hasn't he done anything? Well, here's why. Verse 21. I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He's saying, like, I'm, I was afraid of you because you are harsh. The word he actually uses there is you are so strict, so exacting, so unfair, so ungracious. And so I did nothing because I was afraid. And this reminds me of the story when I was a junior, senior, I can't remember, sometime in college. Went to the college, to the college. I went to the University of Oklahoma. And me and my friends loved to just kind of pull pranks around campus. And there was one night in particular that will forever be ingrained in my brain where there was, uh, there was this frat party happening at the SAE house. And the way that their house was structured is that it backed up to the street and there was this big outdoor pavilion where everyone kind of go out there and hang out. So there were maybe 40 some odd frat stars out there just drinking, chilling, doing their thing, minding their business. And me and my four or six idiot friends are one street over with a three-man water balloon launcher. Like, you know these things where one guy's holding this, another guy pulls back this thing? And so we've got a bag of water balloons, and me and my buddies are just, so we lob the first one, and it, boom, when it smashes up against the brick. So they don't really know what's going on. They're a little disoriented. We launch another one. Boom! Disoriented, but now they're starting to know it's coming from this direction. And we really, by the third one we got off, it's like we had disturbed the hornet's nest. 15 to 20 guys jump over the pavilion and now are chasing us as hard as they can. We drop everything and run because they are strong and we are not. And had they caught us, they would have hurt us severely. So we're running through campus and we scatter. We go in all directions just sprinting for our lives into campus. Me and my buddy take this turn and the only way that we feel like we can escape without going into like an open part where they'll see us is we jump into this abandoned construction dumpster. And we get to the back of the dumpster with just crap everywhere in there. And we sit down and we just sit there and wait for 30 minutes praying, hoping that these people do not find us. Because should they find us, they kill us. And that is a picture, that's a picture to me of what the third guy in the story is like. He's just sitting there waiting, afraid that should this guy show up, he is going to wreck me. He's going to wreck me. And here's what I wonder. I want to kind of drill this in a little bit and make you ask the question, does this even sound remotely familiar to you? Does this resonate at all? Where maybe you're the kind of person that has kind of checked off on Christianity like, you know, you're technically registered as a Christian in your mind, uh, just in case it can benefit you down the road. 
But if you're honest, you've taken your Christianity and you've kind of folded it up and you've put it in your pocket and you live your life going about the business of building your kingdom, not his. That you don't really engage in this family business of I die so that others live. But you hold on to the card. You got it in your pocket in case you need it. And if someone asks you the question, if someone really asks you the question, what is God like? Deep down in your heart of hearts, you would say something like this. Well, I do think he is pretty harsh. He is pretty strict. All these rules. He's always wanting me to do... um, He's always wanting me to stop doing the fun stuff that I love doing. And he always wants me to do this boring stuff that I hate doing. All the rules so demanding, so strict, and he's so unfair. He's so unfair. Why does he bring things into my life that make me suffer? Why would he make me like this with this particular challenge? It's unfair. Deep down, all of us, my guess, is at some level can identify with that feeling of he's harsh, he's strict, he's unfair. And that's the third guy in the story. What's crazy about this and what we're supposed to see is that this is so delusional because it's juxtaposed about what just happened before. What just happened before? This king, this master, took two guys that were functionally night managers at cookout and he made them governors over multiple cities. Like extravagant grace, extravagant uh, goodness and generosity to these guys. And yet this guy is committed to seeing this guy as strict and exacting and as harsh. And so in the end, verse 22, he's condemned. He's judged. But I want you to notice that he is judged for his lack of faith. It's interesting. Uh, Judgment will not be based on what you can produce. If you notice, even in the story, some guy produces 10, some guy produces 5. It doesn't matter. You might produce 1. You might produce 100. It doesn't matter what you produce. All that what matters is if you were faithful, meaning do you have faith? Do you believe that the master is as good as he says he is? Because what happened, what went wrong with the third guy is he refused to see the goodness of the heart of his master. He refused to see it, and he was committed to seeing God as strict and as severe. And the real irony of the story, I think, is that God will be only severe with those people that think him to be severe. If you think him to be strict and exacting, God says, that's fine. You don't have to enjoy my goodness. But if you think I'm strict and exacting, that's exactly what I'll be for you. And this is kind of the same logic behind the horror, horror of verse 27, As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. When you're somebody's enemy, how do you think about them? You don't trust them. You don't like them. You demonize them. You think the worst of them. And so Jesus is basically just saying here, if you refuse to see the goodness and generosity of God, and you're committed to seeing him as an an uptight, tit-for-tat, power-hungry brat in the sky, that's okay. You can think that about him, and that's exactly what he'll be for you. But I don't know, if you're anything like me, when you read verse 27, you read it, and you're like, good grief. Jesus is trying to make a case for why God is good, and then God says, line up my enemies and slaughter them. That seems to be like the behavior of someone who's not good, right? Right? That seems to be the opposite. And then I was reminded of this passage um, 
from, that, from C.S. Lewis and his great little book that he wrote, Mere Christianity. There's a chapter in there called, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. We, we, have, we have a basis to be really troubled and uneasy. And as the, as the chapter goes on, he explains the reason why we should be really uneasy about God, it's when we refer to him as good. Because to call God good means by definition he is opposed to that which is evil. That's what makes him good. That he looks at evil and he doesn't approve of it. He looks at badness and wants it done with. That's why he's good. And the reason why we should be troubled, as he says, is because none of us are really good. And so he gives this line, I think it's really interesting. He says, some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. And they need to think again. God does not look at what happened in Paris last week and just look at it with indifference. He is grieved and angry over the evil of it. When monstrous, monstrous people kidnap children and then sell them to be sex slaves, God like doesn't have a rosy glow smile about that. He's deeply angry about it and is committed to doing something against it and about it. And so I'll just say this. If you have a God that you think is good because the Bible's God isn't, but your God can look at evil in the face and doesn't really care about it. Let me just say your God's not worth a breath of your lungs. He's not worth your praise. Because that's not good. That's actually evil. To look at evil in the face and not care is evil. God does not look at, this, at the rape culture in many pockets on this university and the systemic racism of this country and have a happy Santa Claus rosy glow smile about it. He says, I'm going to come and judge it, end it, crush it, make it go away, restore it, bring all things back to life again because that which is evil does not exist in my kingdom. This is the Christian doctrine that has been around since the beginning, that one day, someday, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And what makes that really bad news, as I said before, is that you and I are on the side of the equation where we're not that great. Where we participate in a lot of the systemic injustices of our world. Most of what I think and feel and do is not good, I would say. But I do want to leave you with one little bit of good news before we finish. And the good news that I want you to consider is this. I want you to go back to the beginning of this story. Where are we in the whole plot line of the Gospel of Luke? Jesus is heading in and is about to walk into Jerusalem. In fact, this is the last parable that he tells in Luke before he goes into that city, before he's arrested, before he's abandoned by his friends, and before he gets hung up on a cross, slaughtered. What's absolutely astonishing to me is that the king of this story is slaughtered on behalf of his enemies. He pours out himself on the cross as an offering precisely for the very people that don't trust him and don't want to build his kingdom. People like you and me. He pours out his life for us. And everything in your heart, everything in mind that says God is harsh, God is unfair, God is strict, God is demanding. Why would he let this happen to me? Why would he not take this away from me? Why is he letting me struggle like this? All of those accusations get dissolved at the foot of the cross. 
Because how can you look at Jesus hanging up on the cross, bearing your sin and your shame, calling out to the Father, forgive them. How can you look at that and say he's harsh? That is the the supreme expression of his grace and his goodness for you. And when you see the cross, it melts away all of the suspicion in your heart over whether or not he's really good. And in fact, what it does is it gives you the resources to be able to take on any amount of pain or suffering or handicap or devastation and to filter it through the cross and to see it as his gift to you. That you can look at anything that comes your way filtered through the cross and to see it as his good grace given to you. And so I really want to end by saying I think you have a choice. You have two options. Option one is this. Uh, you can look at the cross. You can look at who God of the God of the Bible is and you can say, I don't think he's good. And I don't want to be, I don't want any part of that kingdom. And that's fine. You don't have to be. You don't have to enjoy his goodness. God's not going to force you to. You are free to make yourself his enemy if you want. But you don't have to. The other choice is that you can be his friend. His friend. That you would look at the cross and be so overwhelmed by the goodness that's demonstrated in it towards a sinner like yourself. And to say, I'm so compelled by how gentle and gracious and kind and merciful he is to me. And be so compelled by that, you say, I I want to engage in this story. I want to enter into the story. I want to carry on the family business. He died so that I might live. I want to be able to die so that others might live. That's called faith, by the way. You can be his enemy or you can be his friend. It's your choice. Consider an invitation. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your mercy and for your goodness that you are good and that you are kind and that you are gentle and that you are sweet. And there are even times in my own life where I have felt and experienced you to be harsh and reckless with me. And yet when I look back in hindsight, I see that you've actually been very gentle and tender with me. I pray that you give me the eyes of faith to trust you more, to see you as good. And I pray for my friends here tonight as we gather together for the last time this semester that you would give us faith to see and to believe who you really are and to know in our bones that you are good and that you are recklessly committed to blessing us. Father, I pray that these words would not just bounce off of our hearts as just more information that's boring and ready to get on to the next thing, but I pray that we would sit and soak and think about whether or not we are your friend or your enemy. And I would pray all this in Jesus' name.